And to move right along, we will talk to our guest for today, Samarala Chirut Labadosul. Yes. Badosul, professor in the Department of Community and Environmental Sociology, which is a great department, by the way, has been teaching about people and the environment for years, and he's no stranger to WORT. Here's a clip from May 2021 when he talked about the Israeli attack on Gaza with WORT's Jonathan Zaroff then. We don't hear that much about the environmental issues. I mean, because the other issues are so dramatic and pressing and catastrophic often. Do you find that? Is it uh, hard sometimes to make the environmental issues known because of all the literal smoke in the air? Excellent question. I mean, I think of the world has made, um, you know, I think of people and environments kind of are uh, connected at so many levels, right? And politics and environment cannot be separated at all. So my work on water in Palestine shows and demonstrates how Zionist understanding of water resources in Palestine in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, all of that led to a specific settler colonial sense of what water looks like, how do we relate to it, how do we build infrastructures in order to facilitate a settler colonial ethnic cleansing system. So um, there is so much connection between the conditions of water and what we think of them and how we perceive them and the politics of settler colonialism, lots of it. And even, I mean, that's not only in Palestine and Israel, but also in the U.S., for example. I work on some issues with the Menominee Nation, and you can see how water is used or reframed in ways that allow a settler colonial kind of perspective and policy still continue after 200 years of presence in Wisconsin. Professor Attitude has been speaking in many fora before and since October 7th to explain how and why the current situation in Israel and Gaza did not begin then, and working to create an understanding and framework on how to find a new and better way for people to share space and resources. So, Gil, now I'll turn it over to you. And I want to welcome Samar myself. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us tonight on Worldview. Thank you so much for having me. And so, from my perspective, we could spend the next half hour talking about this water issue because it's fascinating to me as a possible solution to things. But I think it's important for our listeners to focus back on where we are right now. And I think that to give our listeners a better sense of of who you are, we've just heard a clip of the kind of research you've been doing. what, What is your personal connection to Palestine? Yeah. Thank you for having me, Bill. And Yeah, I'm originally Palestinian. I grew up in the city of Nablus in the West Bank, and my family actually goes back to the 1400s, right, 600 years. So our relationship with the land itself, with with Palestine, but also with Nablus itself, is very rooted in a long history of the family and of the people around us. And so I grew up during occupation. I mean, I'm we are old, older. <laughs> and so I grew up in the 1970s and 80s, and I witnessed a lot about the occupation from that growing up. So occupation didn't happen now or 20 years ago. No, it has been there for 60 years, right? And even if you take 1948, it happened 75 years ago. And so it's been a long history, a long historical trauma, and a long collective trauma that 
I witnessed part of it, and I still witnessed a lot of it. But yeah, I grew up in Nablus. My our family home, for example, is in the old town in Nablus. And as it says in it, like 1805, it was established. That's the large family home. And, um, you know, so it's a long um, historical connection with the land. I, I want to shift to where you are right now at the university and actually jump to, you You, you did your, your academic work in different parts of the country, but you, you got your, your doctorate at UC Berkeley? No, at Cornell. At Cornell. Cornell. Okay. Yeah. And and you're now working here and you are a member of the faculty here. And, and just within the past couple of days, the faculty and staff at the University of, of Wisconsin have signed a, a statement about, so this is shifting mainly to what's happening right now in terms of this whole debate over anti-Semitism right. and, and anti-Zionism and its relation to what's going on right now in this conflict in, in Gaza. So I wondered, I just wanted to read just the beginning of it right here, which is something that you signed. It, it says here that uh, the, the faculty and staff at the University of Wisconsin who signed this letter are concerned about the growing trend to treat criticism of the policies and practices of the state of Israel or of the ideology of Zionism as evidence of anti-Semitism, a term used to describe hatred and bigotry towards Jews. A failure to distinguish anti-Semitism from criticism of Israel obstructs the ability of colleges and universities to educate and facilitate important civic discourse, and it also interferes with the fight against true anti-Semitism. So could you talk a little bit uh, about that and yeah. how it fits into what's going on right now and how people here in the United States are responding to what's happening? Yeah, sure. Um, maybe we will get to what's happening now later on. But in terms of the statement itself, the statement is has not been released actually yet. Okay. But it, <laughs> so you're um, you're announcing it earlier. Well, it was available on yeah. the internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. It is. <laughs> and what happened? Here's what happened. A few of us faculty members of the university here on campus felt that there are needs of students especially, and staff and faculty who are either Muslims or Arabs, right, which includes Christian Arabs and stuff, and Palestinians, who have been targeted in the last couple of months with attacks, right? And these attacks are related mostly to their position on the Israeli war against Gaza. So what we did is we were worried about the students especially. And the Arab, Muslim, and Palestinian students have been uh, targeted with some attacks that were really not, one cannot appreciate, right? And especially targeted as anti-Semitic because of de their defense of Palestinian rights. But at the same time, they were attacked even, I would say, physically in the sense that people come in their faces, throw bottles at them, do things to them. So we as a faculty thought that we need to intervene in order to protect the students, right? And so we had meetings and we had meetings, a listening session with the students where we, we became aware of the degree to which the students have been subject to attacks. And, you know, we had about 80 to 100 students coming to the listening session. And so we were really astonished at the level, at the degree of um, animosity on campus that is, is what kind of coming out. And it's not only our campus. It's not only our city, all over the place. All over the country. Yeah, yeah. all over the country. So, so what we did is we started 
thinking about what is it that we need to really focus our attention on. So we don't want to we don't want to intervene necessarily with geopolitics right in the region, but we want the the campus space and our city to be safe enough for the students and for faculty and staff to protect their freedom of speech, but at the same time to have a clear understanding of where that freedom of speech might become hate speech or not to become hate speech. So what we did is they issued this statement, which says basically that critiques of Israel and critiques of um, Zionism, right, which is a political ideology, and of course Israel is a state, that those critiques should not and cannot be equated to anti-Semitism, which is a hatred against Jewish people. And uh, we strongly believe in that. And I think so many people, I mean, so many Jewish scholars have signed so many petitions in the last couple of months that declare the same exact intent. And recently, it's especially because the Congress is trying to get into these kinds of definitions and, and they are attacking universities and university presidents. And so what right. we are doing is to declare that there is a right of research and teaching about any state whatever, whether it's Israel or the U.S. I mean, we, we criticize our state all the time, the United States, right? So how can we say that the critique of Israel is worse than a critique of our own state, right? That doesn't make sense. So what we are opening up is, you know, we should have a discourse, but we should have it civil, right? We should be accepting of each other, having the same kind of freedom of discourse and and to go along with that. So it's really more kind of focused on campus life and how can we protect our students' right to speak and our right to research and to say what we think is true um, without fear. Yeah, and I'm sorry if I've, we released it sooner than it was released. Oh, it's but okay. It's yeah. been signed, the document that I saw has been signed by a large number yeah. of the faculty. Yes, and that's good, actually. Maybe yeah. <laughs> other faculty, if you agree with the notion, right. please go and look it up. And uh, not only faculty, actually. And right, faculty and staff, staff. right? Right, exactly. <laughs> well, b back to what is happening right now on the ground in Palestine and in Israel. I don't have the most recent news in front of me, although we have reported some of it just now about what just was happening in Jerusalem. But the broader question I would ask you is, what do you think right now are the biggest obstacles to, to really move to taking these steps toward a ceasefire that we need right now that everyone really wants, I guess, except the Israeli military, which is continuing its, its attacks? What, what, what are the main obstacles from your perspective? For a ceasefire? Yeah. Well, I mean, here's what I think more generally, right? I think the Israeli Zionist kind of control over Palestine from the river to the sea, right? The whole area was planned from the very beginning, right? I mean, that was the plan. It didn't, it failed and it didn't work. When you say from the beginning, you're starting from <clears throat> 1948 or? Um, I think, no, before, like 1920s, for example. Okay, they all right. Even, I mean, the Zionist plan even included a, a small sliver of east of the Jordan River. So a small sliver of Jordan was included in, in Zionist planning of where the national home, Jewish national home should be. Okay. So, so, but it didn't work exactly 
like they said, because, I mean, there were Palestinians, right? So initially, the Zionists were saying that there is a, a land without people for a people without land, which is, of course, a big lie and propaganda. And then they discovered that there are Palestinians. So in 1948, in 1947, when the United Nations Security Council divided Palestine into two places, right, Palestine and Israel, or the Jewish space and the Palestinian space, the Arab space, they gave, uh, Jews were about 30% of the population, but they gave them about 56% of the land, and they gave the rest to the Palestinians, or at least apportioned it to the Palestinians. Now, the Israelis immediately, I mean, the Zionists immediately started what's called Plan Dalit, which is kind of a pogroms plan to ethnically cleanse about 400 to 450 Palestinian towns and villages within Israel itself. And that's what produced the refugees, which, uh, which was at the time about 750, 800,000 Palestinian refugees were kicked out of their houses and homes when Israel was established. And those refugees, many of them went to Gaza, many of them went to, to the West Bank, and when many of them in Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria, right, in refugee camps. Those refugee camps have been ongoing, right, still alive until now, right? And who pays for those refugee camps? It's the United Nations. The reason? is that the United Nations in 1949 said that the Palestinian refugees have a right to return to their homes. That decision, which is 194 in 1949, still the rule, it's still the resolution that is functioning from the United Nations. It never was- um, Rescinded or- Rescinded or exacted, right? And so because of that, the United Nations pays for the UNRWA, which is the United Nations Relief and, and Work um, Agency for the four Palestinian refugees specifically, which handles all of their schooling, um, healthcare, any number of things, right? And so those refugees are still living in camps and the only thing they talk about is precisely going back and returning to their homes, which is Israel, right? Now, in Gaza itself, you will find that about one and a half million, there are 2.3 million in Gaza, about one and a half million of them are refugees. What that means is that they live in refugee camps and these are the descendants of their parents or their grandparents came from the areas that are adjacent to Gaza within Israel, right? That's their homes. That's where the right of return that they have, that yeah. they hold dear to is. And so, so I don't want to go, but in 1948 is really long ago, right? People think that, you know, American politics is measured by electoral politics, which is two to four years, right? right. That's the span of our, of our memory, political memory. The rest of the world doesn't function like that. So Palestinians still have the notion that the return is a right to Palestine. Now, things happened, of course. Let me jump to 2005. 2006, where Gaza, Hamas, the political group, you know, won the elections there. Israel, anyway, things escalated where Israel put Gaza under siege, where anything that goes in and out of Gaza under the control of Israelis and Israeli military. And between 2005, and this is what I want to deliver, 
is that between 2006 and 2000 and these days, Israel attacked Gaza several times. Here's I'll, I'll tell you the big ones: 2008, 2009, 2012, 2014, 2019, 1819, and 2021. And each time they attacked Gaza, they killed between 300 and 2,500. So the notion that October 7 is exceptional, that it never happened, is not true. It happened, but it happened on the other side. Gazans were the subject right. to these multiple October 7 attacks, and the Israelis are the ones who attacked Gaza that way. So, I mean, I think we need to dispel the notion that all of a sudden Gazans, or even Hamas, on October 7, woke up and said, oh, let's attack Israel. That's not true, right? I mean, the context is really important. Now, context doesn't mean justification at all. It only means that we understand why things happen and how they happen, right? Right, and understanding, understanding the narratives that are behind this is, is really important as well. I mean, you are describing to us what is very definitely the, the Palestinian narrative and the historical fact that backs it up. But I, I wanted to just read you the, this one quote from researcher Natasha Gill of the Middle East Policy Council. She says, a viable peace process, because that's what I'm trying to get to, is there a viable peace process or not, does not require that either party, either party to embrace or even recognize the legitimacy of the other's narrative. It requires that both have an informed and non-reductionist understanding of what the narrative consists of, come to terms with the fact that it cannot be wished away, and recognize that elements of it will make their way to the negotiating table and have to be addressed. So I don't have someone here to talk to about what the Israeli narrative is. I mean, right. but it seems clear to me that, that what she says is, is eventually true if you're going to reach some point at a negotiating table. Do you think that that's really possible? And what's Yeah, that's an excellent question. Read my pinned tweet. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, yeah, no, that's a really excellent question. You know, many people, what do you know about Hamas, for example? What we know about Hamas from the Israeli narrative is that Hamas wants to get rid of all Jews in Palestine, right? right? Throw them in the sea right. and Israel as, a, as such. Does anyone know, only a few people know, that the controlling coalition in Israel right, yeah, has a charter? Guess what charter the Likud party? Guess what the charter says? It must be something similar with the it's opposite more. target. It's even more. It's basically saying that between the river and the sea, they use the same exact language, right? Mm -hmm. Between the river and the sea, there will be only one sovereignty, and that's the sovereignty of the Jewish people and the state of Israel. And Palestinians cannot have a separate state, period, right? So that's the, the controlling coalition. Now, put that along with the statements that were issued by several members of the cabinet of Israel, right? Um, um, what's his name? Smortich and Ben Gvir and Netanyahu. For example, Ben Gvir said a couple of years ago that Palestinians within the West Bank and Gaza have three options. One, either to submit full, fully to Jewish domination. That's how he said it. Or they can leave or get killed. And that's exactly 
what they are doing now in this Israeli coalition. So with Natasha, I think I agree to some degree, but at the same time, if the narrative requires the ethnic cleansing and genocidal kind of practice where your imagination of the land is empty of the other, is empty of the Palestinians, there is no negotiation, right? right. There is no negotiation. So, I mean, my worry is that people don't take Israelis on their word. So the cabinet, its members, every single member of them, by the way, said something along the lines, we need to send Palestinians in Gaza into Egypt. We need to distribute them along among you know different Arab states. We need to send the West Bankers into Jordan. Many of them said that. And we don't listen to them. Even American, American policy institutions, they keep saying two states, two states, two states. And yet Netanyahu just yesterday said, no way I will have another state, uh, an, a Palestinian state between the river and the sea. So what are we talking about, right? So if there is a genocidal kind of project, we need as a world, I mean, not only as Palestinians, I'm actually, I'm actually mostly um, a humanist. I think of my, myself, I don't think of myself as limited to my Palestinian, Palestinian identity, yeah. right? I'm not at all. And I think of myself as a very humanist-oriented kind of person who thinks, okay, if it is really exceptional, and in my judgment, what's happening now in Gaza and what will happen in, in the West Bank if we allow this to happen is absolutely exceptional. And I believe in the heart of my heart that what's happening is an attempt at genocide and the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. If I believe that, then I have to say something. I have to stand up and say something. It's actually an obligation, I think, not only for every state like the Genocide Convention of the United Nations says, but actually it's an obligation for every one of us to face the truth and to come out and speak something, say something against genocide. So in Palestine, what do I think the end result should be? I mean, I think a two-state solution is really impossible. I mean, I, I don't mind two states or one state that's both are okay for me from my perspective. But what? But two states seems really unlikely. Two right? states is really an unlikely. Do you yeah. know? I mean, the West Bank in the last fifty years of occupation, the West Bank has been divided into two hundred twenty-four population centers. Each of these population centers are surrounded by checkpoints. Right? There are more than five hundred sixty checkpoints before. October 7th. Now there are more than, than 1,000 checkpoints that allow you to go or not to go, and they check and they control Palestinian movement. And so how these are like population centers that are unconnected, that is impossible to connect one with the other, and surrounded by a wall, the apartheid wall, and surrounded by settlements. I want to just interject one thing in terms of current yeah. news uh, that fits exactly what you're saying in terms of what's happening right now. I'm just quoting from a news story that was on National Public Radio this morning from mm -hmm. where the reporter was talking to Palestinians who have olive trees on the other side of the wall or yeah. through a checkpoint from where they are living. Mm -hmm. And 
they since October seventh, they have basically been unable to go and, and to to attend to those trees. The harvest is not going to happen probably for a large number of these farmers who who have orchards of, of olive trees and date trees and, and others, and those farmers are, are going to go bankrupt. And this is just a very physical example of what you're talking about, what the current situation is, and how, how can a two-state solution actually address that? It's very difficult. I mean, and I mean, I wrote actually about the wall and its, its um, effect on farming and a lot of these farming communities at the, in 2009. But What's happening is that there are 700,000 Israeli settlers within the West Bank who control most of the West Bank, and they are in between these population centers of Palestinians. So for me, the two-state solution, sure, if you can, if you can actually take 700,000 settlers and move them into Israel and then establish a Palestinian state according to... But we tried to, that once. I mean, wasn't there yeah. actually... An effort to to actually move settlers out uh, several years ago in Gaza. Yes, in Gaza. Right? Yeah, in and, Gaza. And, and, but, yeah. and what was the result? Yeah, that was not in a peace process, right? That no, was no, of course side. not. Right. So the Israelis decided that for security purposes, it's better for them to withdraw the the settlers, settlers from yeah. Gaza. But they but they did not have a peace process in order to do it, right? Which is very different. But I think you're right. I mean, it's very difficult. It's going to be very difficult. I actually, from from my perspective, there is nothing that separates Palestinians and Israelis other than, you know, I have so many, of course, uh, friends, right? Israelis all the time, right? I have so many friends. I know the Palestinians. I know how good the Palestinians are and how amazing a people they are and how steadfast they will be. I know their connection to the land. I know that connection is not going to be interrupted, regardless of what Israel does. But also I know that Israelis are captured within their propaganda machine, that the Israeli public is captured within the Israeli propaganda machine. That's unbelievably powerful. And what I would say is that in order for a solution to actually be enacted and to take place, what we need is a, is a process of reconciliation where it's important in that process of reconciliation, the acknowledgement, whether someone is Zionist or not Zionist, right, um, in Israel. Right. Whatever is one, one's ideology, there should be an acknowledgement that the Palestinians have carried the brunt of the Zionist project, that we paid the price for the Zionist project since 1948, regardless of whether one thinks it's a good project or not a good project, right? So there's there needs to be some reconciliation and there needs to be an opening up. So nationalism, for example, which is the ideology that that controls people's politics, needs to be, yeah, like it needs to be really, I mean, it's, a, it's an old ideology from the 1800s. It needs to be abandoned yeah. in some way. Yeah, and, yeah and in some because, way. Because it's an old ideology that worked in the 1800s. It will not work now. How, what comes besides nationalism, right? How do we, exactly. I think, opening up our hearts, our minds to, to each other as humans who should live in equity, justice, the, without any frames of racism, right? The problem is, is that it's really difficult 
I lived in Israel. That will take a long time. And I know the unbelievable racist narrative that surrounds Israeli understanding of the Palestinians. Mm. And but Samia, we have to leave it yeah. there for today. But thank you. And we have some hard work to do ahead of us. So thank you for coming in and talking to us about it because I hang on your words. You make sense a lot of sense. Thank you. Thank anyway. you so much for having me. So thank you to Professor Samer Alatut for helping us understand and for working tirelessly for justice and peace. And thanks to the Worldview Collective, especially Gil and Buya, Sabi, Maria, and especially WRT News and Public Affairs Director, Shali Pittman. And thank you for listening, and please join us next week for the new edition of Worldview here on your community-sponsored radio, WORT 89.9 FM Madison, and WORTFM.org. And now, stay tuned for Salawat.